singing. You may be seated. Thank you, Ethan. That was his first time out doing that. Did a great job. If you think it's easy, you should try it sometime. It's very difficult. Um, we're starting a new series tonight, The Normal Christian Life, which immediately raises the question, well, what is it? And I'm glad you asked that question. We're about to find out in the next 11 weeks. Um, the first two messages tonight and Sunday night, I'll be continuing the series. We're going to look at the context of the normal Christian life, and then after that, we'll get into the actual doctrine on uh, what God tells us in the book of Romans about living the normal Christian life. Um, this first message is titled, Paul's Motivation Must Motivate Us. And that title will become uh, self-explanatory as we get into it. And before I start, I also need to acknowledge that the events of this weekend uh, have been shocking, horrible, um, indescribable in many ways, and much of what I'm going to talk about tonight addresses that in terms of uh, the meaning of human suffering. And of course, I began writing this uh, months ago, had no idea that uh, the weekend before I stood up to bring this message, uh, we would have this terrible, terrible event in Israel. But that's the world we live in. Um, so what is the normal Christian life? Those of us who've been around for a while uh, may agree that we've not yet quite mastered what it means fully to be a Christian. Um, and by that I mean how we experience Christian life in a way that fully honors God, fully honors God, and impacts the world around us. That is being a normal Christian, fully honoring God and making a difference in the world around us. And if we're not quite there yet, I do believe that we live in a time when we need to hurry up and get there. Uh, the time, the circumstances of this era demand it. There's never been a period, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, it's not scripture, uh, but I believe there's never been a period since the early days of the New Testament church when Christians who make up the body of Christ face a more urgent need to grasp the reality of what we believe and apply that reality to our daily circumstances. We need to make our Christian faith not theoretical but practical. Our once familiar and comfortable world is changing rapidly in ways that begin to look a lot like the end of days is finally here. The transformation is disturbing, and I wouldn't blame you if it produces the uneasy feeling in your heart that the worst is yet to come. Isaiah describes it as a time when transgressions are multiplied before God and sins testify against sinners who lie about God and depart from him. He wrote about that a long, long time ago. He says it's a dangerous time 
And these are his exact words. When judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. That's Isaiah 59 verses 12 to 14. This time that we're living in, and I think it's a tremendous privilege to be alive in this day. This is a time that demands we who declare Jesus Christ as our Savior must understand what we believe and live as if we really do believe it. There is so much that passes for Christianity today that is so far from the template we have in this book. Surely God can find a few Christians here and there who would live as if they really do believe what the Bible tells us. Even if we do live that way, it's going to bring increasing persecution, increasing condemnation from the world, and increasing rejection. But that's to be expected because we're so out of step with the world we live in. It's a time that demands that we do right. So what does it mean to live the normal Christian life? Our attention will focus not in the next few weeks and not tonight either. Our attention is going to focus not on what we think might happen, but on how we should behave if the worst happens. That's what we need to know as Christians. How do we behave? Imagine yourself back in Israel this weekend, living your life happy, secure, blessed, and suddenly out of the sky, terror drops on you, and everything changes in an instant in the most horrifying way imaginable. We're going to draw from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans and the insights of a Chinese Christian as we try and answer the questions about how we should live. A Chinese Christian I've mentioned before, Watchman Nee, he lived in China from 1900 to 1970, which was a very turbulent time in Chinese history and where uh, 60 million people were slaughtered. 60 million, that's a lot of people. And Christians were persecuted relentlessly. And the title of the series, The Normal Christian Life, is borrowed from his book by that name. So let's begin by looking at the meaning of our salvation. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? And before we start, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the remainder of this message. Father, please, I need your help tonight. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the, the good times we've had together in the last weeks thinking this through, uh, writing it, changing it, uh, meditating on your will, your way, your word. What an incredible privilege it is, Lord, to be able to open your book and try and glean truth from it. And I pray that as that truth goes forth tonight, you'll bless it, open our hearts and minds, as we draw closer to thee, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The life lived by the Apostle Paul is a template that we can use to see how well we measure up as Christians. We begin by looking 
and our salvation as outlined by Paul, how did he arrive at his appreciation of life in Christ? And the answer is found in the horrifying list of Paul's physical sufferings and mental anguish. Now this is so counterintuitive. The answer to Paul's appreciation of the Christian life is found in his sufferings, physical and mental. And the list is so long and intimidating, and I think I've just done the unpardonable sin here. I didn't silence my phone. I apologize. It just pinged in my pocket. I'm so sorry. Uh, pastor never carries his phone with him when he gets into the pulpit. It's a habit I need to get into. Um, where was I? The, uh, um, as we look at Paul's sufferings, we wonder how any man could go through what Paul went through and not lose his faith, his faith, or at the very least stop preaching the gospel so that he wouldn't get into trouble all the time. How did Paul endure? How did he make it through? We're not going to read the passage. I want to commend it to you because it's a lengthy passage. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. I have referred to it often over the years. An extraordinary passage. Write it down. Go and read it when you get home. A list of what Paul suffered as a minister of Christ. What he endured. The beatings. The stonings. The rejection. The shipwrecks. Uh, the, the resentment, the shunning from people, just relentless, and it went on and on and on, and yet Paul endured. Um, as you read the passage, you think to yourself, you know, that's not really the ideal recruiting poster if you're trying to win people to Christ. I mean, you're not going to hold up, okay, everybody, we want you to become a Christian. This is what you're going to go through, suffering, and it's going to look like this. Uh, you're not going to get many people stepping up and saying, ooh, me, yes, put you on top of the list. But then we come to Paul's joyful declaration of a reality that can be known only by those who know Jesus Christ. And we begin to see something new and compelling in the truth set forth by Paul. The apostles' sufferings fueled his faith because they drew him closer to Christ. And folks, when you get close to Jesus, nothing else matters. When you stand in his presence, it's so overwhelmingly wonderful, everything else fades into the background. I want us to read two scriptures. These we will read uh, because they... If we read them together, they, they tell the whole story. We'll begin with Romans 8, 28 to 39. This is quite a long passage. Uh, but as we read through it, just think about the impact of these words. It's an, a marvelous passage. It's, it says so much about our faith and the God we serve. He begins in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8 and says, We know, we know. It's not we, we don't hope, we don't speculate. We know, if you're a Christian, you know this is true. That all things work to all things, good things, bad things, tough things, easy things, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to 
his purpose. And then it tells us what his purpose is. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. He planned ahead for us to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants to make us look just like Jesus. We have spoken about this recently. And then he goes on to say, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son. If you ever doubt God's love, listen to these words. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Against that truth, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That is a wonderful statement. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Speaking about people's attitudes to Christian. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, he has a testimony to what Christians were enduring in Paul's day. As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. There's only one faith. There's only one belief. There's only one God who would dare to put that statement in a book in black and white writing for everybody to see. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us in every situation, the worst possible situation. God says you're a conqueror if you stick close to me. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've spent any amount of time walking with God, you know this is true. I'm looking at a room full of veteran Christians for the most part. Doug back there is a brand new Christian. God bless you, Doug. But the veterans here know it's true because you've lived this life. Now, you haven't perhaps gone through the sort of things that Paul went through, but you know it's true. There have been trials, torment sometimes, illnesses, and yet it's true. Nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God. And then we turn to Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 12 and marry what we've just read to this statement by Paul. Uh, here he's talking about, in addition to all these trials he speaks of, he had another terrible trial, and he begged God, please deliver me from this. And God says to him, no. Look at verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, 
Most, my strength, uh, sorry, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, in my weakness, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. The heart and soul of Christianity is found in these two passages. Everything you need to know about Christianity and about our Savior Jesus Christ and what it means to really be a Christian is found in these two passages. These words make no sense whatsoever if Jesus Christ is not real, resurrected, and living in my heart and yours. These words are a lie, except that Jesus is alive, and he does live in my heart and in yours. And there's that witness in us that says, yes, I'm with you. Every minute of every day, I'll be with you, I'll strengthen you, for when you are weak, you're going to be strong in me. The weakness spoken of by Paul could take many forms. and We've got to understand the difference between trials and trials. There are two kinds of trials. And sometimes we see trials perhaps as punishments from God. These are, this is a negative. God's just being mean to me. Um, but our most common trials are like the growing pains of teenagers and stem from our own inability or unwillingness to overcome habitual sins that get us into trouble and then we think we're being tried. No, no, it's your own stupidity that got you there. Or our unwillingness to forgive the sins of others towards us. Or to be careful in managing our financial resources and we get into trouble financially and think God's punishing us. Or to overcome spiritual laziness and inconsistency. And that gets us into trouble and we blame God. Those aren't real trials. Those are just our flesh tripping us up. But prayer and genuine repentance are usually sufficient to, del to deliver us from these common trials. More serious trials are spiritually much more beneficial and are generally beyond our control. Severe illness. You know, when I was a little boy, it wasn't one of my life aspirations to get cancer at the age of 70. Never, oh, 72, however old I was, four years ago. Uh, I was 73 four years ago. Uh, that wasn't on my bucket list. Um, and I'm not the only one. Some of you here have got even more severe illnesses. Uh, that's a trial. Natural disasters. Uh, you're living in your dream house, minding your own business, and a hurricane comes on and blows your, your roof off. How do you respond? The unexpected death of a loved one. or persecution for our allegiance to Jesus Christ. These are trials. These are actual trials. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about these kinds of trials. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, 
who built a great work for God in the heart of London, England, over 100 years ago, and that church I visited many times, is to this day a great preacher of the gospel, faithful to what Spurgeon started there. One of the biggest congregations in London, you can go there any Sunday, you'll find about a thousand people there just feasting on God's word. When the average size of a congregation in London is about 40. Spurgeon built that great work while suffering perpetually from all sorts of physical ailments. He really suffered. This is what he said about it. We should never know the music of the harp if the strings were left untouched, nor enjoy the juice of the grape if it were not trodden in the winepress, nor discover the sweet perfume of cinnamon if it was not pressed and beaten, nor feel the warmth of fire if the coals were not utterly consumed. The wisdom and power of the great workman, God, are discovered by the trials through which his vessels of mercy are permitted to pass. Present afflictions tend also to heighten future joy. There must be shades in the picture to bring out the beauty of the lights. Could we be so supremely blessed in heaven if we had not known the curse of sin and the sorrow of earth? Yes, I agree with Charles Spurgeon. For deliverance, in and through great trials, we need to look no further than Paul's example, the Apostle Paul's example. His faith, based on his experience of Christ as a close, continual presence, caused him to live life to the fullest, regardless of outward circumstances. Paul did not just know Christ. He knew him as his Savior, as almighty God, and as his best and closest friend. That's Christianity. When you know that, you know this world is not your home. And a lot of decisions are easy to make. When through your relationship with Christ you have tasted the glories of the life to come, in that eternal world beyond the veil, when you know the love of Christ, in a way that is beyond ordinary knowledge. It's not book learning. It's in here learning. When you know the hope of his calling and you are touched by the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the exceeding greatness of his power towards you, nothing, nothing is left of this world to hold you back from risking everything for Christ. Everything. The obstacles, temptations, and trials of this life shrink and lose their power in the face of heaven. Oh, when, when you are close to heaven, the little speed bumps in the road here don't seem very big, very momentous. Unless, of course, the things of this world are more real to us than the hope of heaven. Uh, just as a thought exercise, consider which of these two circumstances may be worse. Number one, Ignorance of salvation and living a rebellious, sinful, and ultimately futile life before the futility of death claims you. That's the one possibility. The other one is salvation in Christ, yet living in a way that is only distinguishable from the unsaved 
because some of the outward things we do are not quite as bad as some of the things they do. And some of the useless things we value are not quite as useless as some of the things they value. And that's what separates us from the world. Now, the obvious answer is that spending eternity in heaven is preferable to eternity in hell. But if the thought of escaping hell is the only thing that motivates us in our Christianity, and we're constantly looking over our shoulder at the world, wanting to go back there, we're going to have a miserable life as Christians on this earth. We have no strength to withstand the trials when they come. Like blind and deaf beggars at a banquet, we'll be ever hungry, ever thirsty, ever dissatisfied, and until at last, thankfully, we stumble over the threshold into heaven. Uh, look at uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, speaks of that, what it's like to barely make it into heaven. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Speaking of your salvation, your foundation is Jesus Christ. Verse 11, verse 12. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, things of worth, wood, hay, stubble, things that have no worth, every man's work shall be made manifest. He's talking out to Christians. For the day shall declare it, that is, the judgment seat of Christ, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, the fire spoken of here isn't the fire of hell. It's the fire of drawing close to God's presence, God's glory. You know, the picture is of uh, when you first get saved uh, and Jesus forgives your sins and cleanses you, you feel delivered from sin, and you should. But as you get closer to God, you notice that that white robe that he's dressed you in well, I never noticed that before. Look at these big splotches. Well, you're getting closer to God. You're more in the light, and you start to see your defects. And then you get closer, and you see more of your defects. You get to the point eventually in your Christian work, you wonder to yourself, how is it possible that God could love me? I'm, I'm depraved. I'm, I'm rotten on the inside. How could God die for me? But he did. If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I believe there are going to be a lot of Christians getting, stumbling across the threshold with the smell of smoke still sticking to them, or the wood, hay, and stubble that just went poof. It, heaven will still be wonderful, but I bet there will be some regrets. If only I tried harder. Such a life is not normal for a Christian. The spiritual condition that produces the shallowness is found in a lack of true repentance. Repentance is not a promise to do better or to try to be better. That's not repentance. Repentance is a broken-hearted response to an awareness of the darkness that lies within us. That's repentance. When you see yourself as you really are, Repentance is Paul crying out to God, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Wretched, wretched man that I am. That's the great apostle Paul. So what motivated Paul? Pale, 
half-hearted, malnourished faith is not what motivated him. His approach to life was to squeeze everything good out of it, inspired always by the certain knowledge that his life lived in Christ now was the life he would live always. And he decided to start living it now. You don't have to die to go to heaven to start to experience heaven. You can literally experience heaven here, today, right now. And the joys of heaven, and the glories of heaven, and the love of heaven, and the presence of your Savior, you can have that now. You don't have to wait for them. The Bible tells us from the day of your salvation, you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. And in Paul's approach to life, He emulated his blessed Savior, of whom it was said that he was made, speaking of Jesus, uh, actually Melchizedek, and he was a type of Jesus, made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless or an indestructible life. The meaning of this powerful phrase about what motivated both Jesus and Paul is self-sacrifice in the knowledge of eternity. The more real heaven is to you, the easier it is to give up things here. The easier it is to live for Jesus here. The easier it is not to complain about the little trials of life. The easier it is to understand those terrible trials that come your way to each of us at some point in your life. The meaning of this powerful phrase Uh, is highlighted by the contrasting story of a man who lived only to please himself. I had to include this because I just thought it was so good. Ronald III was a 14th century duke in northern France. Now, dukes are uh, part of royalty, but they're not quite princes. They're not quite at that one step down from princes. He was a duke uh, in northern France. Today we call it Belgium. His nickname was Crassus. That's Latin for fat. This guy was seriously overweight. And his younger brother finally deposed him, kicked him out of his office. And Ranald was confined to a special area in a castle where after he entered, the doors and windows were made just a little too small for him to fit through. There were no locks on the doors, no locks on the windows, and he was told he could leave at any time. But he loved eating, and instead of dieting his way out of prison, he grew fatter and died in that room, a prisoner of his own appetites, unwilling or unable to see past his immediate need. And many Christians live like old Ranald, just sloppy in the ways of the world. So what is the meaning of life? If that's not the meaning of life, and it's not, what is the meaning of life? Paul's example presents us with a liberating truth. The normal Christian life begins when we starve our old nature because we understand the meaning of life. And this is it, to know God. Do you realize that that's the meaning of your life and mine, why we're on this earth? To know God to draw close to God, to be conformed to the image of God through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's the meaning of our life. Whatever else your priorities are, this is what God wants for each of us, to know him. 
It is only with such motivation that we may be set free from the bondage of our flesh, our old corrupt nature, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Jesus said it best when he told the unbelieving Jews that he who commits sin is the servant of sin. But he added, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Hallelujah. All animals, humans included, are alive to the extent that they exist and respond to things within. The normal things for any living animal is the need to eat, to sleep, to multiply. And things without, primarily threats to their continued existence. But we humans are not entirely animals. We are one step above them. We have souls and respond also to stimulation from things unseen that stir our egos and our imaginations. Some are stirred by awareness of life beyond this life, although such awareness is usually clouded by superstition and uncertainty. Human awareness truly expands only when we are touched by the life of God from beyond the veil, that thin veil that separates us from the eternity. Only then do we have the potential to graduate from merely resist, uh, existing and responding as all living things do, to live with joyful purpose flowing from God's inner presence and power. And folks, I hope I haven't laid it on too thick and depressed you with what I've said. The point about all of this is that we should rejoice. There is joy in getting close to God, and God in his mercy helps us to get close to him by putting us in situations where we've got to get on our knees and pray. Say, Lord, I need your help. And the result is always joy and blessing and strength and glory to live and to be in this earth. To know him is to receive his transformative love and love him in return. When God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his, Romans 8.16, we grow closer to him and begin to know him better than we know the things of this present evil world. And so in conclusion, Jesus taught that knowing the truth will make us free, free from bondage to the things of this world, free from doubt and uncertainty, free from dissatisfaction and disappointment, free from fear of death. The foundation of this knowledge is God's plan of redemption. And I encourage you, as you look at the world round about you, as we see these horrible things happening, and wonder, is that going to happen one day in America? What we have in this book and in this word is the answer for each one of us. Just get close to God. Be filled with his spirit. And everything will work out fine. And it begins with God's plan of redemption. And that plan is established on two facts which are powerful images of eternal truth, the cross and the empty tomb. And we're going to look at those two in detail in the weeks ahead. But before that, we're going to take another look on Sunday night at what it means to live beyond the reality of this present evil world. Do you know that you and I are equipped to live there, in that place? Beyond our reality here is a much more permanent, a much more real reality. And it's close to us if we'll just reach out. 
and touch it. Father, I pray that for each one of us, 